You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Whitley Strieber is the author of The Hunger, The Wolfen, The Night Church, Communion, Transformation, Breakthrough, The Greys, The Secret School, and 2012, The War for Souls. His new book is Solving the Communion Enigma. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. Thank you very much for having me. You know, you use an analogy in here at one point where you say that to a degree we're like chimps trying to understand a truck. Right. And... Um, that made me think of one of my favorite uh, novels by Arkady and uh, Theodore Strugatsky called Roadside Picnic. Uh, and the premise in this novel is that at, for no reason, five zones appear around the world. It's like something was shooting at the world and it hit five times. And in those zones, everything is incomprehensibly strange. It's clearly an alien visitation, but it's totally incomprehensible. And the analogy he used is that we were like ants at a roadside picnic. That book is called Roadside Picnic, trying to, to understand to the trash. And I think that that's a, a pretty good analogy in a way of what's, what's going on here, that there's a lot of stuff that we can't possibly comprehend now. In this book, you also talk. Uh, analogy is an important tool for you. So maybe just talk about using analogy as a writer. I mean, you're a writer out there trying to explain the impossible. That can't be easy, is it? <laughs> well, it can't be. It isn't easy. And it's, it's very fraught because you never can be sure that what you're saying is actually communicating what you're trying to communicate because you can't be certain in a situation like this, there's no shorthand and you can't be certain that if you say certain words that they will have the same meaning to your reader that say, for if you're writing a thriller, a thriller author says certain words and he knows that the reader will pick up the code of those words because they're, 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 that's, they're part of the accepted lexicon of the genre. This is a genre with no lexicon at all. So I just am never sure whether what I'm saying and what's being heard or read are the same thing at all. And it's, it's, like, it's like trying to build metaphors out of quicksand. Let's talk a little bit about the, the communion experiences. I, one of the things I think that's interesting is that you now, um, in retrospect, you regret the cover of the book. Yeah, I regret the cover of communion. And I regret it because even though it's an accurate portrayal to an extent of that face, uh, it is too overwhelming. It's too suggestive, too mythologizing. It screams alien presence. And... It, what it should, what I would have been much happier with is if it was something much more a- ambiguous because whatever's really happening, there's no consensus about it. I wouldn't even argue that it's necessarily real in any way, no matter what Paul Hill saw, uh, in the same sense that you and I sitting here are real, or that it has a life outside of the mind uh, that I would, I would be able to give you a very strong debate that what we're talking about is something that's being generated by us and uh, is emerging out of our increasing discoveries of, uh, the, uh, of, of the difficulties we are in in this universe in understanding it and the sense of being alone that grows and grows with the years, the more and more we discover the vastness, the unimaginable hugeness. The recent discovery, for example, that there must be trillions of rocky Earth-like planets out there, and yet the dead silence is terrifying. What? Why? With all of this potential, 
There isn't even a scrap of radio transmissions, nothing to suggest that we are not alone. And uh, yet at the same time, when you come to this shadow territory between the mind and the physical world, suddenly then you think to yourself, well, maybe we are alone. Maybe we aren't alone. Maybe it's all true. Maybe the UFO cranks, as it were, are, are, are all right. And, but what, my, what that cover did was it imposed that decision on you. It said, this is an alien contact, an alien encounter. I didn't want it to do that. I didn't want that. And yet, extraordinarily enough, the cover played a very important role in that millions of people upon immediately upon seeing that face thought to themselves the same thing. My God, it wasn't a dream. Well, when you talk about what's real and you and I sitting in this room, I can with perfect clarity hear a very high-pitched whine in this room and have since I entered it to the degree that I thought it might be caught on audio. Nobody else can, and it's not being caught on audio. So. <laughs> Perceptions of what's real are, you know, uh, I guess, uh, personal. Well, you know, you you come into the skillet. Welcome. <laughs> All I can say is it's it's pretty hot in here and frying hard. Now, when you talk about in this book, you talk about your personal life a lot, and communion was a huge bestseller yes and and you had had many bestsellers before that the hunger and the wolf and war day uh, war day uh, you know adapted into movies big movies that did really well right uh, you were fairly well to do had a couple residences mm -hmm. once you uh spilled the beans in in communion but couldn't cough up an alien in a, in a cage uh things began to go downhill for you didn't they oh yeah uh well you know you have you think a person looking at a life like mine from the outside would say, oh, he must be immensely wealthy or very stupid. I'm not stupid and I'm not rich either, so you figure it out. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> what happened was this. Communion initially was received very kindly by the public. They were very interested in it. But then they expected an alien to land. I mean, they really did. Mm-hmm. Because people are people's imaginations and their ratiocination are not sophisticated. And they tend to be very passive and to wait for everything. And so uh, the result was when that didn't happen, they turned away and just lost interest in me. And a few books later, I was desperately trying to keep my head above water because you you know, you stop selling books and Eventually, the publishers stopped publishing you, and by the early 90s, after the book Confirmation failed, came out and had a dismal sale, uh, I was unable to publish anything. And the result was I lost essentially everything. I lost our house. I lost our apartment in New York. I lost it all. And I ended up uh, with, in a car packed with luggage uh, with my wife, heading back to San Antonio from whence I had arisen uh, to a little condo that we owned that my mother had lived in before she died that we still were holding on to. That was that, and that was where we ended up. You know, this is such an interesting uh, journey just in terms of uh, a, life, uh, a life journey because um, from these kind of heights of, of, of fame to... to you know, ending up in, in, a, in a, a used apartment in San Antonio. And, and yet all along, you kept having these, these strange experiences, seeing, you know, strange humans. And that's what's interesting about this book is that into the mix of things that are, that, as you describe them, look like animals. People, when they saw some of the things in, that you talk about in communion, they took them yeah. to be raccoons. Well, when, yeah, when people, we would invite groups of people up to the cabin during the height of it because the visitors turned out to be very sociable <laughs> and they would show up <laughs> in, 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 if we had big groups there. And uh, uh, it, I mean, it, wasn't, it was not like sitting down over the dinner table. I wish it had been. But people would react to them 
when they first of all really, really seeing one would just astonish people because they would think, you know, they've had belief that it might be true. They've had what they believe to be close encounters. And then suddenly, face to face in full consciousness, there is one of these little gray creatures. And it was a really a, a major life moment when it happened to people, as it had been for me. My wife was, who is, plays a, an extraordinarily important role in this whole process. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure it would any, any of it even happened without her. I've often thought that if I'd never met Anne, maybe I never would have met the visitors either. <laughs> so, she seems to be a, like a point, a point of gravity to keep you she's in a, orbit she's, but not pull you away from the strange. Right. She's ex so well put, so beautifully put. Thank you. She's catalytic and also a muse. She's brilliant and open-minded and uh, extraordinarily able in this area, in an area when you would think no one could have any real skills. But, but one of her skills was she would pick people to bring to the cabin, and they were always just perfect people for the for this they were lovely sweet sophisticated nice people who had written us letters just public letters and uh who had had close encounter experiences that were genuine in the sense that they weren't lying they weren't dissembling and they weren't confused they hadn't really made any of those confused decisions about what it is and these people were magnets to the visitors they would the visitors would show up because that's the kind of people they liked, and she understood this, and it. And so we would have these really great, I mean, just absolutely historically marvelous experiences there that were all sort of ignored and laughed off, like ever, all of it is. But uh, these people, you know, we had one night when one lady was sleeping in one bedroom, and this creature came in through the window, the windows were all screwed closed. I'd, I, uh, the screens were, I had long since, I had, you know, I could lock that place up very tight, but they came right through the screens, routinely anyway, so it didn't matter much. And it woke her up, and she engaged with it for a couple of moments, and it asked her what it could do for her. And she said you could go down that hall, the hall outside, because the hall was covered by a low-light video camera running all night, and there was a film crew there, and the crew sleeping in the basement and the producer and his wife in the living room. So it left the room. It proceeded to wake up two other people in the next room. Now, you see how this is evolving. It's not a shared hallucination I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about people being waked up sequentially, mm -hmm. one alone and then two with two witnesses. The two witnesses both saw the creature and interacted with it briefly, and then it disappeared. But it went back down the hall. Then the filmmaker woke up and saw, standing beside his the couch, he was sleeping on a convertible couch with his wife, standing there, looking down at him, was a little man with a great huge head. And he thought, holy God, this bullshit artist wasn't lying. <laughs> so uh, it then turned in to the head of Horus, the Egyptian deity, the head of the little man. Now, do you see what's happening here? We're, we're flowing from something that seems like an experience in, the physical, in physical reality with a little alien man mm -hmm. into the world of myth. And the energies of myth are being engaged here in a completely new way. But what's fascinating to me, there are certain people who would have understood that engagement, Carl Jung mm -hmm. among them, much more clearly than UFO investigators today who are basically looking for nuts and bolts. In any case, or Jeff Kripal, who wrote the introduction to this, understands that interaction beautifully. Um, the next thing that happened was the, the creature disappeared before the eyes of the filmmaker. He and his wife woke up, and they started talking. 
And then dawn came, and my son and I came up from the woods. We had been sleeping out in the woods because there were so many people in the house. There was no room for us. And um, um, Annie didn't want us both in the bedroom with her because she was afraid that we'd play practical jokes on in the night, which probably would have happened. So uh, we were coming up from the woods, and we saw a little blue cowled figure come out the front door, go racing down to the end of the porch, racing down the deck before our eyes and then out across the backyard and darting off into the woods, darting around among the trees at breakneck speed and disappearing into the woods. And so we rushed into the house and the filmmaker and his wife were there on their feet. Uh, They had just been washed over by a blast of heat so intense they thought the bed had burst into flames just as this thing left the house. And what you're seeing there is a combination of a mythological figure and an identifiable technology. Because in order to be invisible, you've got to do something to light. And one way to become invisible that we are actually working on now is to bend light with gravity, with a very heavy duty magnetic field or gravity wave. But to do that, you need energy, a lot of energy. But if you are releasing the heat from that energy into the environment around you, people are going to notice. So you keep the heat trapped until you leave the area. Then you release the heat and you leave the area. And that's what they felt. In other words, there was technology, mythology, illusion, all of it mixed up into one thing in this in this event and then there was the camera what was seen not a thing well that's that's in keeping with my recorder as i hear this high-pitched whine i'm very much actually hoping in this case that it won't show up on the audio (laughs) i don't know a lot of people i've had two or three emails from people who said that they kept hearing a high-pitched whine when they were reading the book so who knows i'm just beyond concern i mean i hope it goes away for you i, I hope I do it doesn't I hope, I hope it doesn't just stay with you now you know you talk about um this kind of brings us to uh you talk about when we think about all these things in toto um what could be their plan their program for us and, and, and you know what what's what's their what's their game plan and, and one thing that strikes me you describe yourself as a practical joker yes and there's a lot of the trickster in these critters. A lot. I mean, and when you describe this guy running around and these, you know, and it, and sometimes the trickster's funny and sometimes the trickster's really scary and sometimes yeah, yeah. They're both at once. And I'm wondering if maybe you've ever considered how they might consider you. They might, they're coming at us from this direction outside of what we think. Maybe you're coming at them from outside of their direction. And so they see you as every bit as strange, as threatening, as scary, and as funny as you see them. How interesting. Well, there's a possibility that that could be demonstrably true. And I'll tell you what it is. Many years ago, when uh, the abduction researcher Bud Hopkins was was, uh, hypnotizing people, which I thought was rather iffy way of going about this whole business. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I mean, it's one thing to be hypnotized by a skilled professional. And Bud was a, an artist who was interested in this. He had no professional training in hypnosis at all. Uh, I ha- I, you, you, we used to gather at his house, and a bunch of us who've had close encounter experiences. And One of the young women was an actress. And I laughingly said one afternoon, she was going there and she was going to get hypnotized by Bud and she was all nervous. And I said, well, listen, why don't you play a practical joke on him? And uh, she said, what joke? What? I wouldn't play a joke on Bud. I said, well, how about this? Um, I've always wondered whether or not they smoked. And she said, smoked? Like aliens smoking? <laughs> And I said, well, and she kind of got into it, you know. And I said, well, why don't you go under, if, as you go under hypnosis, why don't you tell him that you remember seeing them smoke, seeing them smoking and see what he says. And she said, but I didn't see them smoking. 
I, I said that the interesting thing would be to see if he believes you. And so she was dubious about what was going on, but apparently couldn't resist doing it to see what would happen, which is what I hoped would occur. And suddenly, a few minutes later, there was a yell, some yelling in there, and he threw her out and came rushing out and threw me out and said, get out, and threw us both out. Uh, Anne might have been there, in which case Anne was thrown out too. Anyway, the girl had said this, and Bud thought these were robotic creatures. And so he said to her, did they inhale? And she said, yes. And he said, well, what happened to the smoke? And she said, well, that was the funny thing. And this was her brilliance. And this is also why she got us all thrown out. She said, the smoke just drifted out through their, the skin of their heads. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, that's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. You're not under hypnosis at all. And this is something to do with Whitley and you're all getting out of here. And so off we went. <laughs> he was right. Anyway, last summer in crop circle country, in mid-July, and you can find this formation if you go on the crop circle connector and look in the July crop formations, you will find among them the face of an alien with a pipe in its mouth and big puffs of smoke coming out of its head. Now, that, you would think, is a practical joke being played on me by friends who make crop formations, at, you know, by people. Mm -hmm. And I would say, of course, it must be true. However, and this is the thing that makes it so much fun, it is the finest crop formation ever made by man, if it was indeed man-made, because we can tell very easily. It's easy to tell a man-made formation when you know what you're doing. There are two types of formations. One type is made in a way that is, defies science. And all the stuff about boards on people's feet and all the laughter and all of the nonsense is just that. It's nonsense. I wouldn't say aliens are making them. I don't know how they're formed. But they're not formed in any way that we understand and can, and can replicate this is why there's crops are where the where the the weed is bent and burnt slightly it, it, it bent it's, and heated but not burnt yeah heated so that the so that the it, the 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 uh joints in the wheat will expand on one side and 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 and, and cause it to bend over but done with such jewel-like precision it's mm -hmm. incredible this formation was made that way mm -hmm. and i thought to myself oh god what what happens if I have a soul and they're waiting for me? And the first thing that happens to me after I leave this world forever is I become the victim of some kind of interstellar practical joke. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not unlikely, uh, to, to be honest. Well, you know what Meister Eckhart said, the great, uh, the great Christian philosopher mm -hmm. uh, of the 13th century, who was quite possibly burned at the stake, he said, God laughs and plays. And so when you see that sort of thing, maybe we're getting close to something worth getting close to. Now, real quick, we spoke about this, uh, I think, last time. I mean, that would be three years ago. Uh, you still have your implant, right? I still have it. Now, it's in my ear. Uh, one of the things you, you suggest, and I, and I had never considered this before, was that these implants are actually a lower form of technology than what we're capable of. Oh, well, yes. That's the thing that's so strange about them. They're much lower. Uh, we could, we can, I, listen, the, the, the military can put an implant in somebody, a, a, a tracking implant in a, in a pilot, that, that no foreign government, is, no one who doesn't know it's there and where it is is ever going to be able to detect uh, certainly, a and identifying implants that can be that, that a, a reader can can read, you know, they hold a reader over it and identify a body. Uh, they can be microscopic. They don't even need to be visible. Now, what, what, when I read that, it, what struck me was that um, 
maybe they don't care. I mean, when we, we tag sharks all the time. Oh, they care all right. <laughs> they care. We, yeah, we tag sharks, and we certainly aren't going to be using that expensive kind of esoteric technology to tag sharks, sharks and chimpanzees. Sure. We're just going to tag them with whatever they can't pick off. In the case of the shark, you could tag it with a, with a, with a bus because yeah. he's not going to be able to pick it off. And a chimpanzee, you have to be a little careful because he's got hands. Mm -hmm. And with us, you have to be a little careful because we've got hands. But I don't think so. I think there's another reason for this. Mm -hmm. I think that the whole gamut of the thing, from the UFO sightings, so ambiguous and, 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 and so accessible to denial and to belief, mm -hmm. uh, the crop formations, so impossible to deny the strangeness of if you really look into it, but so impossible to believe if you don't, mm -hmm. uh, the cattle mutilations, so creepy and so ominous and bizarre, and yet so logical in a way, because after all, we mutilate cattle by the millions every day. Yeah. Uh, uh, the implants, big hunks of metal, inexplicably in some cases, uh, emanating FM signals that, that aren't even in any important part of the FM band and don't propagate more than a few feet, uh, the whole thing, alien abductions that have a physicality to them that's undeniable. I mean, I got raped, mm -hmm. uh, but also an ambiguity that suggests that they're not originally a physical experience and maybe not even, not even a real quote-unquote experience at all. All of this, this is a kind of assault from the surreal Mm -hmm. uh, and the ambiguous, forcing us, millions of us, all over the planet every day to face questions that we cannot answer and cannot bear to ignore. And you know I what? I love that phrase. Yeah. That's a great phrase. It is. It, a study was done showing that people who are exposed to the ambiguities of things like the surrealistic writings of Kafka end up with the logical parts of their brains enhanced. It builds logic. It literally makes you smarter. Now, there's all these crazy shows on the television of ancient aliens came and did this and that to us. And I think to myself, ancient aliens altered us genetically because you, these, these changes will become part of the genetic heritage of the people who are being changed. It's not ancient aliens. This is what evolution looks like when it's applied to a conscious species. Mm -hmm. This is what's happening. We're getting better. We're being made better in some way by, the, by nature, by the universe, by the human mind itself circling around and trying to find an answer to the mystery of its own being. Well, you talk about one thing I thought was really interesting was you talk about what we might do if we were to come on another planet, how we might appear to yeah. those residents. And, you know, we don't have to go to another planet. That's actually happening right now on this planet Absolutely. in Brazil. In Brazil. I just talked to a guy, Scott Wallace. He was a National Geographic reporter who went into this to talk to our – what's interesting is our attitude towards uncontacted tribes has evolved over the past 50 years in much the same way the sightings have evolved. Originally, the idea was bring them into, pick them up, round them up, bring them into society, and they'll be good. And well, no, it turns out they're marginalized and end up drunk. And, 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 right, yeah. And then they said, well, we'll just mark off the territory and say hi to them. And, but that's still, the disease would wipe them out. Now the idea is we want to stay out of touch with them but kind of get to know them. And there's a tribe called the Arrow People, and this goes to our aggression towards anything that comes to us. That they call them the Arrow People because the only main contact you have with them is when they throw arrows at you. And but these people, who, we've managed to discern some of their beliefs, and this is what really interested me and has to do with your book is they've seen jets and they've seen planes. Now these are everyday technologies to us. The the the. Jets, the you know the jet airliners, right. 
Those they consider to be the departed souls of their ancestors, our gods. The planes they consider to be monsters, like big birds or dragons or something. They don't. They have no. They have no way to put together that they're different versions of the same thing. That's a technology that's built by man. They're. They can't even wrap their brain around that. And we've like swept through their villages and disturbed them. I mean, it must be almost exactly to them like the encounters you had. Yes. Were. And I think that, you know, that um, there's a lot to be learned <laughs> from those kind of experiences that we're imposing on others of our own kind as to what's happening here. Well, you know, the Air Force has been shooting at them for years. Mm. Uh, back in 2009... Throwing arrows. <laughs> yeah, right. Dr. Milton Torres uh, suddenly became quite famous because the Ministry of British Ministry of Defense was releasing a lot of UFO papers. Mm. Among them was a description of uh, an American air base in England in 1957 where the uh, 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 wing of fighters was ordered aloft to confront a UFO and fire on it. And the name of one of the pilots, Milton Torres, was mentioned in the, in the document. So people including me, went running to Milton Torres, who's now a doctor living in Florida, and he said, oh, yes, absolutely, we fired on it. We, 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 it was, the thing was the size of an aircraft carrier, and we were, we were scrambled to confront it, and as soon as, we, as, soon as I cocked, get, got my rockets ready to fire, I, I, was, I had it in my sights, it just disappeared. And then it was immediately said, oh, there was a CIA, secret CIA program, and it was a radar, fake radar return, and on and on and on. But Dr. Torres said, oh, no, no, this, this was uh, not ours, and we were ordered to fire on it. More recently, a couple of years ago, there was a terrifically bizarre UFO event over the town of Stevensville, Texas, including a UFO flying low over the town, chased by a military jet, including strange symbols that appeared in the sky that appear to be in some sort of glyphic language similar to very early Hebrew. You figure that out. And afterwards, the Air Force Base, Carswell Air Force Base nearby was called. They said, oh, no, no, we didn't see anything. We didn't send up any jets. It's all a bunch of nonsense and hooey. Uh, it's just uh, 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 Sir Martin Reese's cranks again. But the MUFON people, Mutual UFO Network people, used the Freedom of Information Act to get the, not the Air Force Base, because they couldn't because of national security, but to get the FAA's radar tracks for the area for that night. And once they got the radar tracks interpreted, lo and behold, <laughs> you, get, you see one of the UFOs that was on radar, and you see the jet coming after it and the UFO running away. So I would suggest, given the fact that we shoot at them too, just like the arrow people shoot at us, <laughs> that we change the name of the human species. Let's call ourselves from now on the arrow people. I like that. I think that's a good idea. And believe me, they're going to be hanging back just the way they, just the way we do, as long as we remain arrow people. And according to Hawking, maybe that's a good thing. Well, Hawking is filled with ego. <laughs> you know, you don't have. He's a brilliant man. I'm not saying that, mm -hmm. but he also is. You know, Rusty Schweikert, the astronaut, who hates this whole UFO thing, as far as I know said to me one night, uh, he said, you know, Whitley, sometimes I half believe you, and I hate that, because I don't want the, the way to Mars to be a well-worn path. And there's a great deal of that in every scientist, and this is serious business, who, who faces the possibility that his whole life of search could be in an instant trumped by a presence so powerfully informed and filled with understanding that he no longer has any real mystery to face. And this is why many of the peoples who were roughly invaded and welcomed into 
society by Western technologists back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s as we expanded into these isolated areas became miserable and drunken because their cultural culture, their cultures were invalidated. And that is what they fear. And it is why Stephen Hawking finds the idea of alien contact uh, ominous and why any, if there are aliens here, aliens with any kind of ethical sense are going to treat us with great care and are going to be very, very wary about closing the question until we can meet them on an equal footing. The chimpanzee has got to at least be able to sit behind the wheel, if not drive the car. We just better hope that uh, it doesn't turn out that ethics are uh, quaint and outmoded as, as uh, our old old uh, digital clocks. <laughs> well, yeah. You know, one, one scientist who's, who, who's into this and, and who's, who, who is very comfortable with it said to me, he said, well, you know, Whitley, I'm not really concerned about the ethical issue. And the reason is that a species that advanced is going to have to be ethically more advanced also. And I said, well, you're basing that idea on our own history? And he said, well, yeah, we're much more ethically advanced than the ancient Romans were. I said, we are, but we're not more ethically advanced. I mean, we're much, the, 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 the communists under Stalin and the, the Nazis were ethically far less advanced than the ancient Romans. And they are still living, many of them, among us. So watch out. That's a dangerous assumption, I think. Well, yeah. And, you know, ethics, ethics aside, ancient Romans and modern humans are happy to step on ants. <laughs> well, that's another problem, isn't it? <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I, that I want to talk about as we wrap this up is um, your wife, Anne, provided the key to this book. She did. So talk about that key and uh, talk about our existence here as a larval stage. Well, what happened was this. Uh, Anne... Anne kind of took this thing in hand. She was bemused, I think, would be the best way to describe it by my initial descriptions of a close encounter of the third kind. Anne is a very curious human being, very open-minded, very brilliant. Uh, but she was willing to, to take, to suggest, she was eager to suggest that I might keep my options open with this and not come to the conclusion that it was really an alien contact. And she's a master of keeping the question open. She's very, very good at that in conversation. She's really quite good. So, And you make sure it's it, important to understand, to ask the right question. question. Yes. And so she took the letters and we began to get thousands and thousands, bags and bags of letters. Annie took these letters in hand because she reads like, she's a speed reader. She can read with you know, she could read so fast, and she would be reading these letters, and she make it, made a chart of the things that she was seeing that were consistent across the letters. And one thing that the UFO community never mentioned, and that no one had understood to that time was, she said to me, Whitley, these people are seeing aliens and seeing the dead with them at the same time and it's a consistent finding and it's true i did this the first night the communion night there was an old friend there who had been in the central intelligence agency and my initial thought was i'd been roughed up by a bunch of intelligence guys who had some political axe to grind with me and i'd been drugged and i tried to get a hold of him i tried for months Finally, I tracked him down. He'd been dead for nearly a year when I saw him and sat with him out in the woods and talked with him. In our cabin, you'd have aliens come into the living room where there'd be a bunch of people sleeping or trying to sleep. And then in the basement below, this happened. There were 
a man and woman sleeping together. They were a couple, so they were having a they were in a private p- space, and they woke up and saw a friend of theirs standing perfectly healthily, not looking like a ghost or anything, at the foot of the bed. Uh, uh, she died in the Mexico City earthquake of 1983, and she said, "I'm just here to tell you I'm all right." All at the same time, another case: a, a woman who would that night would have a close encounter of the third kind with an apparent alien was walking down the road in front of the cabin that afternoon and suddenly came across her brother who was perfectly, looked totally normal. The trouble is, he disappeared 20 years before and the FBI had declared him dead. And uh, she said, my God, where have you come from? And he said, oh, over there. I just came to tell you I'm all right. Whereupon he drifted, floated off into the woods and disappeared. Well, this uh, gets to, I think, um, uh, what what happened to you and what happened uh, to the the men in the Sulawesi uh, uh, jungle, the the similar experience. And Arthur Machen, uh, a very famous British fantasist, wrote quite a bit about this, um, a journey into the other world, into what's often known as uh, the land of the fairy, the the fae. The land of the fae. The the these lands are all around us we are we we are actually living in a very small place that is embedded in something much much larger that is richly endowed with consciousness understanding and experience far beyond what we have now but that leads me to the question that is central to my whole life experience why is it like this and if it's true that we are kept here in this isolated, carefully designed little, little, little bubble of unknowing, why? What larger reason is there for mankind to be like this? And I don't think at this point that it's so true to say, oh, well, uh, it, it, you know, it, it's a, it's a, we are an after effect and some some irrelevant after effect. Somebody is doing something. We are the something. But my question is, what are they doing? Well, you talk too about uh, uh, evolution through stressing the different sides of the brain. Well, like we just talked about yeah. that a, mo- a couple of to- moments ago. Stressing the brain actually changes the brain. And this is happening all over this planet to millions of people. Everybody who's dealing, everybody who's listening to this now and isn't simply saying, oh, it's that fool uh, trying to make another million million dollars or whatever. Um, uh, Everybody who's entertaining this and, and thinking to themselves, these are real questions, is being literally changed by whoever it is that is doing this to us. Every person as soon as they open their mind to this question, immediately has a direct link to the core of the mystery. And this, I think, goes to uh, some research being done in consciousness, human consciousness. We're, we're at really at the edge of technology, and you talk about this kind of consciousness. You're a dualist, I, I gather, in that you think that mind and body are separate. It's the it, Descartes, I think it's Descartes, who does it, thought that mind and body were, were separate beings. No, I'm, I'm actually not. Oh, okay. I, but I'm, I, I think that, that the, the, the transformative potential of the physical and the profound transformative potential of the physical is unrecognized. Mm. That we are, in effect, blind to our own potential in this respect. We, we don't know what we are or what we could accomplish. Uh, that's actually... Uh, ver- now verifiably true. A lot of brain scientists are, are really at the edge of discovering. I just spoke with Michael Gazaniga, who's doing a lot of. He's did a lot of very famous split brain experiments right, with, with yes. the patients where he would where people who had had their uh, have their brain separated to prevent epileptic seizures. Your left eye sees goes into your right brain, right. and your right eye goes into your left brain, and it turns out that. The right side of your brain is the fact. It just it, this is the part of your the half of your this is the half of your brain that sees the re- reality, mm-hmm. and then this is the half of your brain that tells the story. 
and that there's this kind of storytelling aspect to all our lives. And, and this half of the brain is happy to lie. It, it just wants the best make sense story out of what's out there. This thing is catching everything. Well, interestingly enough, you say it's happy to lie. What you're really saying is it wants to make sense exactly. of what it sees. It wants, a, it wants a narrative, a story. Yeah, it or wants a narrative. This was where my relationship with my wife was so valuable because she was not interested in the narrative nearly as much as she wanted to know where the ambiguities lied, lay mm -hmm. because she was not convinced that any narrative that I could come up with was going to accurately reflect the actual experiences. And she felt that the articulation of the ambiguities and the questions surrounding them was the thrust of our, the important thrust of our work, not coming up with an accurate narrative. What you do come up with is a narrative that makes people think and transforms, I think, literally does transform the way you see the world. As I said, as I walked around your neighborhood, I was looking for, you know, people in windows and just looking at stuff and thinking, you know, that could be really odd. And then I came up here, and I'm still hearing the high-pitched whine that nobody else hears. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the neighborhood is... <laughs> Perfectly normal and very prosaic, except for that dinosaur. Yeah, well, and have, you, <laughs> have, you, have you had any, you know, all, in all the other places you've lived, you've had some kind of odd experiences. I have had in this room. What? Tell us. Well, uh, I'll tell you. In um, 2009, I wrote a, not a comic novel, but a wry novel called 2012. I love that novel. Yeah, it's a fun book. Fun novel. I really had fun writing it. And the idea of, of the writer who's writing a novel that is actually creating a war in another universe and they're coming after him to try to get him to change his story is really fun for me. So I had a lot of fun with it. Um, the writer in Duress is a character that I like to, like to uh, play with in my fiction. Uh, so in any case, uh, the book was published in, I, I think in August or September and I found myself one night in, in December. Uh, uh, first, I had uh, some papers showed up suggesting that parallel universes may be three-dimensional realities, a particularly trenchant one by the great uh, English mathematician David Deutsch. Mm -hmm. And so I was thinking to myself, my God, maybe, the, maybe it's actually true, and I'm the writer, and the fact that I've written the book has changed a parallel universe, and they are going to come after me. The potential for a practical joke proved irresistible to the visitors, and they showed up here. I, of course, and, and here's what happened. Um, it was a very rainy December night, a lot of wind coming in off the ocean, and uh, something woke me up. Uh, 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 movement uh, or sounds in the room and I could see through the uh, as I woke up I was lying on my side facing the windows which were the the blinds were partly open I could see all these lights hanging out there in the in the clouds and the clouds were just rushing past and the lights were absolutely still and there was no way you could see street lights from my position at all and I thought holy moly it might be a UFO and I had a I've had a camera or now a camera phone on my bedside for many years. I grabbed it and sat up, and then the clouds were just normal. I didn't see anything. So I thought, ah, oh, it was a waking dream. I know millions of things about the state of the mind and sleep now, by now, as you may imagine. Mm -hmm. So I lay back down, and I turned over and started to go to sleep, and there it was again. So this time I woke Anne up, and I sat up, and it was gone. And I realized it was there, but you could only see it from that angle. Mm -hmm. And so this was a real anomaly. So I grabbed the phone, the camera phone, and I couldn't quite get an image of it because the, there wasn't, the, with the blinds half closed, there was not enough room. So I rushed over to the window intending to bend down until I saw it and could take a picture of it. But by that time, it had gone almost out. It was, it was disappeared into the clouds. It was gone. But it was not even 100 feet above the, the, the intersection just here, just down the street. And I thought, darn, I missed it again. And 
But then I, I went back to bed and we went to sleep and suddenly I had what appeared to be a dream uh, that Anne had let a pack of dogs into the, the apartment and they'd gotten under the bed. And I jumped up out of the bed think, and very confused and I rushed into the living room and everything was changed. It was a different room. I turned around to go back into the bedroom to get Anne, who was just going back to sleep at that point. And the hallway was different. I was in a different place, entirely different. Mm -hmm. And this went on for 15 or 20 minutes. And during that time, I went to seven different lives in which I was a, a participant in all seven of these lives. Uh, and it was as if the concept that we live in a kind of a foam and each universe, each reality is a bubble in the foam reflecting only itself. And somehow on that night, the bubbles had popped and I was ending up living consciously mm -hmm. in a whole bunch of different realities. And I decided later that this was such a complex experience, most of it unfolding while I was awake, that it was at least possible that it was a close encounter, that some other presence had come in order to give me a hard time over parallel universes in the book. <laughs> I've been speaking with Whitley Strieber. This new book is Solving the Communion Enigma. Thank you for joining me, Whitley. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.